friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the MC Lars podcast. From my brain to your ears via the magic of technology. It is Monday, June 10th. This is episode 41. Today's episode is brought to you by the new Patreon supporters, Alex, Joshua, and Lacarnus. Thank you all for signing up and by the old school Patreon supporters, the Plaid Lantern, Kelton, and Justin. Thank you all for your support and your love. As many of you know, the Dewey Decibel System is out. It came out Friday and it's gotten a great reaction. We dropped the new video on Thursday and uh, it's just been awesome. I played a show with Big D and the Kids Table on Saturday with my band, and it was fun playing the old songs, talking about the new songs. Basically, it was awesome. My band killed it. This weekend, Mega Rand and I are in New York. We're doing a bunch of press to promote the album. We're going to be on the Marvel podcast. Holler! They wanted to do a podcast with me when Zombie Dinosaur came out, but it, the timing just didn't work. So we're going to be on the Marvel podcast. We're doing a live performance for Paste Magazine. And as many of you probably saw, Nerdist premiered our 1984 video. So it's been tight. Shout out to Stunt Company for being our publicist, especially to Sue. I've been working with her on and off since 2003, 2004. So she's dope. This week, the Ozymandias video drops, which we filmed in the desert in Phoenix. And then later this month, or maybe next month, the Julius Caesar video with Dan Bull is going to drop on his channel, which is super exciting because he has like a million and a half subscribers. So that's gonna be cool to see like the reaction that gets. I asked y'all, please tell your friends about the video, spread the word. They're divided amongst different channels. But of course, I'm always excited for people to subscribe to the MC Lars channel. And I'm focusing more on music videos, got a lot more stuff coming up. I'm working on an album, a secret album to come out in the spring. So that's what's up on top of a secret project. What's coming up? We got some shows coming up and, um, it's super exciting to talk about this. I'm playing Underground Arts this Saturday with Frontalot and Word Burglar, and that's going to be a tight show. Don't miss that. I don't play. It's in Philadelphia. I don't play Philadelphia a lot, but I have been playing it more these days. Then the 29th, I play the Warp Tour in Atlantic City, and then July 6th, I play Anime Midwest outside of Chicago with Mega Ran. So a lot of cool shows. As always, for the show details, you can go to mclars.com slash tour. I've been reading a lot this summer. You know, I haven't been super active on social media. I took a break from my Twitch streaming and everything. I've been working on some other stuff I've been reading. As you know, I finished Infinite Jest. I finally had time to read some Richard Brodigan. I read two of his books, Trout Fishing in America, which I talked about last week. And then I just finished A Confederate General from Big Sur, which was his first book about these dudes who meet up and end up camping out and living in Big Sur and all their crazy adventures. And they both know about this Confederate general from Big Sur. And in this weird, surreal story, Big Sur, which is part of the Monterey Peninsula or south of the Monterey Peninsula, the south comes to the west coast and has this weird rural place. And it's all the stories that take place like these guys' adventures. But it kind of reminded me of Kerouac's Big Sur. And like I said last week, Brodigan is one of the last beat authors. And it's similar. It's like Kerouac's Big Sur is about like the end of his career as he kind of winds down and tries to stop drinking and just loses himself in the beautiful California coastline. And this, coincidentally, was Brodigan's first book. It's about a guy making friends, trying to start his career on the Big Sur coastline. So I, I very much recommend it. I also read Bukowski's Ham on Rye. I know Bukowski is problematic, and you know he's definitely not a feminist, and some of his stuff is offensive, but man, he can write. 
And it's kind of, I love his style because he's very influenced by Hemingway in that he speaks clearly, directly. The book is very funny, the way he quotes his friends, the chaos and the hypocrisy of modern life. It's, it's a story of him moving from Germany, growing up in America during the Depression, and then becoming a writer as he works these horrible jobs, which most of his books are about. But I like Bukowski. And maybe Bukowski was wrong about women, right? That's a reference to my own lyric. Hey, that's meta. Speaking of great writers, let's get right into it. This week, I have one of my favorite people in the world, Chris Gates. And I always talk about, oh, I love this person. This person's my favorite, blah, blah, blah. Chris, though, where do I start? Chris and I have been friends since we were 11. We Our birthdays are close together. We met in sixth grade. And Chris is a fantastic writer, a hilarious guy, good bass player. He was the bass player of my first band. He um, is in Los Angeles. And back in the day when I lived in New York, right after college, we would hang out all the time. And I want to work on more projects with him. And we've, we've did like a book pitch for like a hip hop history book. We worked on script stuff. We've worked on a lot of stuff over the years. Chris has a comic book he did called Space Hacks, which is pretty dope. And he used to write for Mad Magazine. That's freaking crazy. So if you go to ChrisTheWriter.com, you can see a lot of his work. He does a lot of pop culture stuff. He's like very funny on Twitter. But I wanted to talk about, it's interesting how our lives are similar in that we both wanted to be creative people who did our like creativity, our writing for a living. And we both ended up figuring out how to do it. We talk about Game of Thrones. It hadn't been over yet, but we talk about our love for that and a bunch of other things. I'm going to end with the DJ RoboRob remix of my Dragon Blood song, which I think is cool because it's like a chiptune version of the theme song. Shout out to DJ RoboRob of the Cran Droids out there in Dallas. I see you, Rob. No, I don't actually because I'm not the NSA. I'm not Big Brother. So this is my interview with my dear friend, Chris Gates. Follow him online. Check out everything he's doing because he's a genius and uh, I love him a lot. Okay, thanks, guys. I'll talk to you at the end. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here in Glendale, California, with one of my favorite people, one of my oldest friends, a guy I've known for almost 25 years, Chris Gates. Hi, Chris. Hi, Andrew. Or Lars. They No, you know me as Andrew. I do know you as Andrew. <laughs> and you've known me since, we've been friends since we were 11. That is true. That is correct. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Monterey, California, or Pacific Grove, California, to be more specific, um, like... Lars, I went to middle school in Carmel. I went to high school in Pebble Beach, which is famous for its golf courses. Uh, if you don't know where Monterey is, it's a couple hours south of San Francisco, and it's uh, it's nice. It's a kind of very white, upscale neighborhood. Do you uh, miss it? Do you miss the Central Coast? I do not miss the Central Coast. I like visiting it for the holidays. I like going back to uh, see my parents and spending a couple days there. The beaches are really pretty. But there's not a lot there to do, and there's not a lot there in terms of, I don't know, people and culture, I feel like. There's not a lot of young people. There right? are definitely not a lot of young people. And it's mad expensive. It's insanely expensive. We have this in common. We're both nerdy guys who ended up working in media, who mm -hmm. grew up in kind of a sheltered place. Do you think you would still have your same passions if you hadn't grown up in Pacific Grove? I think I would, partly because as a kid... 
and you know this, I was pretty reclusive. I spent a lot of time on the internet sort of before the internet was like a major thing. I mean, so, so did Andrew. That's how Andrew and I, uh, I mean, we became friends because I recognized his AOL screen name. You were an early adopter of the internet. I was. Your dad is a prof- was a professor, right? Or is a professor. Mm, he, yeah, he, he is a professor. And your mom was a teacher. Mm-hmm. So they both really encouraged your curiosity, huh? I think so. I mean, I was always kind of a weird kid. I was always like telling stories and like making odd jokes and like getting kind of weirdly fixated on media things. Like I was really into Ghostbusters. I was really, really into Gremlins 2 as a kid. Not the first movie so much, but the second one. And so they were they were kind of indulgent. I also was like very shy. I mean, I'm still very shy. So yeah. so again, like to go online, like I had friends online. I had kind of like this like weird like social life online when I was like 11 or 12 before people like were doing that, I guess. You were big on the muds. I was huge on the muds. I learned what a mud was because of you. Yeah, there was this Tolkien-based mud that was like my main game where I ended up becoming like an administrator. And it was called a Lendor? It was called a Lendor. That's amazing that you remember (laughs) that. (laughs) Yeah, and it was like this text-based game where you'd go in and like most muds are kind of like what World of Warcraft is now, but just with text, right? So you go and you get your quests and you kill your monsters and you get your treasure. But like a Lendor was was different. It was like this collaborative storytelling thing more than like, so it didn't have that many mechanics. It was just kind of like, you'd be like, well, my character's doing this. And someone else would be like, well, my character's doing this. And you'd tell like these like dumb little like stories set in like, like Lord of the Rings. But this is like back before the Lord of the Rings movies too. So it wasn't like, Lord of the Rings was this, I mean, the books were extremely popular, but it wasn't like this huge cultural force. So it was just all these like nerdy, like teenagers on there pretending to be hobbits for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> but you were like, you were 11 and they were probably college kids. A lot of them were college age. Um, a lot of them were adults, which is kind of funny now. Yeah. And I was 11 and I was like the administrator of the you Shire. Gollum? And I was, I was Sam for a long time. Okay. And then I think moved me to Gollum, but that was in high school when I was like, kind of got busy with like homework. Uh-huh. And so they were like, you're not really like paying as much attention to what's happening here. They're like, we're going to move you to a character that like no one really, that doesn't really interact with anyone ever because it was Gollum because he just lives in a cave. Did you die? It was the dial up, a dial up. Like, where were they based? Were they in Monterey? Or um, I think the server was in Arizona. We had a dial up service. I mean, first I used AOL, which is dial up. Uh-huh. And then I briefly used my dad's account at the school that he taught at, but that's a school that's affiliated with the military. Mm-hmm. And so pretty quickly, my parents were like, you really should not be playing games on your dad's military account. <laughs> um, so then they got me like a, just a local service. I, can't, I think Redshift was the name yeah. of the the local dial-up service. So it was, okay, so it wasn't like a BBS dial-up. It was no, it, centralized on the early internet. Yeah, it was an international thing. We had a lot of people there. I mean, I had a friend from Sweden who was who played the game. Um, have you ever met any of these people in IRL? I have. Wow. I've, I've met a couple. Um, I have one really good friend uh, who lives, she lives in China now. Um, she's not Chinese, but she went over there to teach English, and she met her uh, husband there, who's Austrian and runs an auto plant, and They've got two kids. They come to visit every year and stay with us. That's and we awesome. met We met on this game. We didn't even meet on the Tolkien. We, we met on like a worse one, like even nerdier one that's based on like, have you ever heard of Anne McCaffrey novels? No. no so I need to check it out. They're these books. No, they're, they're not that good books. They're called Dragon Riders of Pern. And they're about like, they're kind of like soft romance stories set in 
this like weird planet where everyone flies around on dragons. And I had never read the books, but someone else I'd played on, on Alendor with was like, oh, you should come check out this other mush. Because there used to be like hundreds of mushes. I think there are not that many now. Yeah. But, but so then I like did, it was like playing it. So I met this, my friend Terry, as we were like just pretending to be dragons or something. I don't really remember what happened on that game, but we got kicked off because we didn't take the theme seriously. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I know. It was, it was this huge scandal and it was, yeah. In a way, it was RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons, but in the way it was text and very imaginative. Yeah, I would say it's probably closer to Dungeons and Dragons than, than say, World of Warcraft. In terms of, you know, it's it's flexible. There were some rules. I mean, we didn't have any equivalent of, like, dice rolls. It was, it was all collaborative um, and sort of done by consensus. So, you know, if you got in a fight, you'd start messaging the person, you know, privately and be like, okay, here's what's going to happen with the fight. And then if things got... Heated because you know not everyone always agreed. You could bring in an administrator who would arbitrate, hmm. but usually it was it was a collaborative kind of storytelling thing, which is cool. I mean, I learned I learned how to type by playing the game. Yeah, um, it was really good for my writing. I think in hindsight and it, your imagination, my imagination, and I learned how to program playing it too. Because awesome. it had like a scripting thing, and when you're an administrator, you had to do some coding. Um, so it was actually like. Like at the time, like in high school, I was like, why did I spend so much time playing this? Because now I have no like real life friends other than Andrew. <laughs> but but in hindsight, I'm like, oh, no, I got I got a lot of like valuable stuff out of that. And what is it? Was it multi-user dungeon? Is that multi-user mud? dungeon is mud. This is technically a mush, which is multi-user shared hallucination. Oh. Uh, but but multi-user dungeon or uh, I think there's another there's another acronym that there's lots of contention over. Okay. From video from mud historians. So there's an acronym and then there's an acrostic, which is when it's created from it, right? Like an acrostic would be like KRS one, knowledge reigns supreme over nearly everybody. It's like when you make when you take each letter and then turn it into yeah. something, but it's a backronym or whatever. Right, right. This is not that. That's an acronym. I believe so. I would yeah. have to double check. I'm not I'm not one hundred percent sure. Nerdy on the lineage nerdy of that question. name. <laughs> You wrote up so you wrote this great article for Playboy about how muds could help inform current <laughs> I, gaming. I did, I did. A couple of years ago. Yeah, it was an article. Um, I don't know if we said this. I write about media, entertainment media on the internet, mostly video games, although I do other sort of geeky entertainment stuff too. Um, so one of the one of the articles I did, yeah, was World of Warcraft. There were reports, um, this is back in 2016, I think maybe 2015, that their subscriber numbers for World of Warcraft had dropped uh, pretty dramatically. And so as someone who used to play on these muds and, and mushes, I talked to a bunch of the administrators for the games that are still running, because the muds that are still running and still have healthy sort of player bases have a lot of players, which is how they've managed to last, even though the technology has gone way beyond sort of text-based role-playing games. And so I did talk to a bunch of them about sort of how they kept that game interesting over, you know, because a lot of these were founded in the early 90s, some of them in the late 80s, uh, the ones I talked to. So how do you keep an online game going you know, for 20, 30 years and keep a sort of a vibrant community around it? Um, a lot of it, you know, and a lot of the answers were like, well, we just keep adding new content or we listen to our players or somehow we get the players involved in creating sort of, or in shaping the future of the game. Right. Um, which is what one of the things that I think makes MUDs different from, again, from World of Warcraft, is that because it's text, it's a little bit more accessible. It's a little bit easier to modify. And free, right? 
And usually free. Yeah. Um, there are some for pay ones, but I think they're usually pretty cheap. So is a Lendor still happening? It Lendor is technically still there. Uh-huh. Um, I check it about once a year and usually there's nobody logged in or there's one person logged in and you can see that they've been idle. You know, they've been logged in, but they haven't done anything in the game for like three days. It's kind of like MySpace. Kind of, it's a lot like MySpace. <laughs> it's like a ghost town, but it's still there. <laughs> it's still there. I'd love to do. I'd love to do an article about Alendor now and why they keep it running, even though nobody's using it. Um, and I've actually reached out to the administrators about that, but I can't find an email address that won't bounce. If anyone um, listening, yes, yeah, so if anyone's out there <laughs> <please>. and knows. <laughs> ChrisTheWriter.com. Yep. You can get a hold of Chris. Uh, yeah, well, how did you pitch that? Well, you? I mean, in 2015, 2016, there were a couple of things going on with Playboy. Um, first of all, their website has been non-nude for a while, although, I mean, it has pictures of, like, sexy ladies not wearing very much clothes. But but it's 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 more safe for work than, say, the magazine is. But this was the same time that the magazine briefly went non nude uh-huh. um and and they've always i guess tried to sort of be a, a go-to place for pop culture or edgy culture so they were doing this big push into gaming and they actually ha- ended up running like what i thought even you know before i started writing for them a really interesting game section because there's not a lot of like really sort of thoughtful games criticism out there a lot of the video game websites especially the big ones and and this isn't a knock because you know it's a valuable service, but a lot of it is, you know, here's a new trailer, here are the patch notes for Fortnite, here's the update, here's a release date, sort of the the very like technical and like consumer focused information. And Playboy was doing something that kind of fit a little bit more with the Playboy ba- brand. It's, you know, here's the cultural implications of these games. Here are... Here's the precedent, right? The precedent, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I saw that they were looking for submissions, um, in 2015 and I pitched a couple articles. I pitched one about E3. It was right around when E3 was happening and it was like the 25th anniversary, 30th anniversary of E3. Um, so I, I did a pitch an article that was like, here's what E3 looked like, you know, however many years ago for the mm. first E3 and here's what happened and here's sort of how far it's come. And then it was also, it was right around when uh, Super Mario Maker was coming out for the Wii U. And so I did an article for Playboy. Um, I pitched an article about people who do ROM hacks of Super Mario Brothers, which is yeah. when you know you go in and you just hack the game and you make your own Mario levels. And so the point was like, okay, so Nintendo's coming out with this cool, you know, Mario Maker game, but look, here's here are people who have been doing this for like ten years. You know, here are the tools they use. You know, how and how is this new game with these official level editing tools going to affect the community? Um, so those were the two pitches I got in with Playboy. And then from there, I knew had a relationship with the editor. And so I just kept pitching it. Um, like I said, they weren't looking for, you know, I did a couple, I did, I think I did an article for them that was like seven games that will definitely make you better at sex. <laughs> that were like games that like, are have sex as a focus, but you know, are like have nothing to do with sex, right, really. Right. Um, and I think I did one, the, the sordid and crucial history of video game showers, because there are a bunch of video games. Oh, like Night Trap? Yeah, Night, so right, Night Trap right. was on there. And there was a game that came out right around when I was, writing it that was called like shower with your dad simulator so it kind of gives you like uses like the absurdity of it to like give you this like peek into like he's like i don't know it's it's a world that i'm not a part of and and i think it does a really good job of conveying 
sort of, I don't know, very specific, but interesting and intimate experiences. Scenarios. Scenarios, yeah. Sort of packaged in like these kind of like wild, campy, sort of controversial like packages. Back in the day, so the hypercard games, there would be dirty hypercard games. When we were in middle school, I met you and we were talking about how we were both on AOL and my screen name was Mr. Nose. Right. And I'd made all these games about cows and about my characters on for hypercard. And you had somehow found them in the shareware. Yeah, yeah. I had played, so I'd played a bunch of the games that Andrew had made um, because we were 11, you know, and and there weren't like that many games on AOL because AOL was not. It was a few years before AOL was like AOL and like everyone was using it. Right, right. Um, and especially, I think, because we were Mac users, there weren't a whole lot of Mac games for Mac on there. Yeah, totally. And there was one where I had taken the code of this game called Mac Cow Pie. And That's I called right. Bomberman. <laughs> and, I made, and I changed the sprites. So my little cartoon guy was avoiding being bombed on. And what was like, it was like a, a very generic remix of a game where a cow was like pooping from the heavens. And you, being a smart coder and understanding, you went in and saw the code and realized that I had like sloppily stolen this game and did my own skin. And you called me out on it. And I like, that was <laughs> such a jerk move. No, but, but like, Chris, like, I wanted to thank you publicly because that made me be more careful of my authorship. Like, it was a complicated game that if I wanted to make hard games, I needed to learn how to code. And so, I started like doing things from scratch more and making like the hard, you could hypertext game, hypercard games you could make. It's easier to do animation and like choose your own adventure, but doing like moving a character around was harder. So like you inspired me to want to do that. And my games got better because you were like, I don't know. It's like, it was special friendship. Like you knew that I would appreciate your honesty. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure that the reason why I realized you'd stolen the code was because I was like, well, I don't know how you did this. Right. So, you know, I wanted to see how the code worked. So I opened it up and then there are all these references to cow pies. And I was like, well, that's not what this is. And Um, then you looked at and you found the original one. I think I found the original one. (laughs) Um, But I mean, but that's how you learn how to code. I think especially when you're a kid. And that's how I know you and I both learned HTML. Right. Like, especially in the early days of the internet, there weren't like that many tutorials out there. So you just go and you'd look at somebody else's page and you'd steal their code and then you'd play with it until it did what you wanted. It wasn't really protected. Like the hypertext wasn't super protected. Yeah, exactly. Becoming a musician, you play other people's songs. And the first band we ever started together, you played bass. I did. In, I played in bass Horace. In, 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 yeah, in your first band. <laughs> and we did our first debut song at the RLS 7th grade talent show. I believe that is correct, yes. Let's talk about it. Let's. What, what are your memories of like those years of rehearsal and what was the song and... How did, what did we do? Well, my question for you, I guess, is how would you classify the music that Horace played at that point? Like, what type of band was that? Well, it was like a, you know, when I do press, like, when I talk about MC Lars, I talk about how I used to be in a punk band because the band I was in with Tim Mm -hmm. became like a a pop punk hardcore band. Okay. Our band was very grunge, kind of like, it was just four chord Nirvana kind of. Right, that's. Yeah. It, and it was, I remember once we were playing the, I played the video for, for my dad's family friends, like at a, they were over and like, look, we were the talent show. Watch this. <laughs> and, and my dad's friend, whose son used to be my roommate, his son, Chris, who I, I did an interview with him. He goes, oh, this reminds me of the Seattle grunge sound. I'm like, that's what we were going amazing. for. Amazing. But the parody was, was of- The uh, parody was of uh, Good by Better Than Ezra. Which is actually a New Orleans band that was influenced by Nirvana. Is it really? Yeah. That's funny. 
Um, the, pa- the parody lyrics that um, I believe were mostly a, a Lars production where it's uh, called Rolls. As we, in, we wrote those together. Did we write those together? We did. That's funny. And let's see how much we remember. Okay, I so, remember none of so it. So Good is a song about a guy who, who breaks up with his girlfriend and gets a note from her explaining that it was a good relationship. And many of you have probably heard this song, the original. So our parody, it goes like this. It goes, eating those handy snacks. They keep the Twinkies right out of my reach. <laughs> Searching for candy and snacks, but there's none of them left. Blood pressure won't go down. <laughs> the doctor tells me he's frightened by my many rolls. <laughs> um, something. And then, of course, it's, uh-oh, it was good. I weigh a ton. Uh, it's very Weird Al inspired. It's completely. very Weird Al. Um, <laughs> and so that and, was rolls. Well, and rolls was a catchphrase of your, because you had catchphrases when you were in middle school. Like things yeah, you'd sorry, say a Chris, lot. I'm no, sorry. It's, it's, <laughs> No, it was like being friends with this sitcom character a little bit. Like the like wacky neighbor who comes in and is like, hey, and then he like spouts his catchphrase and then you're like, I don't know what's going to happen next. But no, Andrew used to just poke people, whether they were fat or not, in the side and just say, rolls. And then he got like a bunch of other kids. To, like I know our friend Ian would do it all the time. And Yeah, I was kind of like, was a, like a, a jerky kid. We were at Tahoe together and we ran in yeah. heavy, heavyweights. Heavyweights. And... um. About these these chubby kids who go to fat camping. It was Judd Apatow's first movie. Mm-hmm. But what name from that movie did I take? Well, the name that that Andrew took from that movie is uh, Lars. That is where Lars came from. There was a, Ben Stiller had a henchman character who was this I don't know muscular German gentleman, <laughs> and he shows up and he, I think he just says something like, "My name is Lars." and and Andrew just lost it. I mean, like completely lost his mind. Like just like doubled over laughing. And from from there on out, like I mean, both of us were laughing a lot at this movie. But I don't know if I've ever seen anyone laugh as hard as Andrew did. And we like, at this rewound character. it and rewound that scene like a hundred times. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris. I was like, <laughs> we were up in Tahoe, and my parents were nice enough to let us pick one movie. And the reason Lars was so funny to me was because it sounded like large. And so the kids were large and I was doing the rolls (laughs) thing, like poking people in the stomach going rolls and (laughs) and all this. And then the other name we're obsessed with was Horace, which is from, was from Dr. Quinn medicine woman, because this barber looked like a horse and he had married a a woman who was a a, a sex worker. So Horace had kind of like this inappropriate connotation. So Ian would call my mom call the house and leave messages where you just say Horace over and over for 10 for, for a minute. <laughs> and so Horace became the band art. The first band was Horace. Right. Right. And, and your first stage name instead of MC Lars was Lars Horace, right? Lars Horace, which was then became the side project of Horace. Right. And it, and then Horace, then when I signed with network became the name of the label, the imprint. Right. And you spell Horace, you don't spell it correctly as a name. Do you remember this? I didn't know how to spell it, so I spelled it H-O-R-R-I-S. Right. Well, I think I think what happened was we were at a birthday, we were at like a sleepover because we were in seventh grade, yeah, seventh, sixth or seventh grade, and someone had a Ouija board, and you know everyone else is asking like, oh, I'm going to date, you know, this girl I have a crush on, yeah. and Andrew gets the Ouija board and he asks, how do you spell Horace? And then it's the Ouija board spells it wrong because none of us knew how to spell the name Horace. <laughs> whoever and was pushing the thing. whoever was pushing the thing. So Horace came from a Ouija board. The spelling, I think. That's great. I mean, you asked the question, how do you spell Horus? So clearly it came from your mind. But Horus then also like is the Egyptian birdhead god. Right. Who later, when I became obsessed with ICP, a lot of their mythology, like the Malenko characters based on Egyptian mythology and specifically Horus. Oh, really? Weighing the souls. So that's crazy. That's like, wild. So actually. 
you guys, it's just so random that I didn't remember that Ouija board story. Good memory, man. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Why weren't you in the Horace that played the New Year's festivals? Did you just had other stuff to do? I think I really liked music as a teenager, but I wasn't very good at it. Um, I played bass. And it was You're fun. a great bass player. I was I was a good bass player for a couple years for like for starting, but then I got busy and I got less motivated for practicing. Um, so I still did it in the the high school. I mean, it's a weird thing to play in a band because it's a string instrument, but we did have bass players in our high school band, so I did it there. Stand up bass, stand up bass, uh-huh. um, and then for football games, I would do the bass guitar. Um, but even by that point, I didn't really practice. I wasn't that motivated. I stopped taking lessons. Uh, pretty quickly after just a couple years. So I got pretty busy um, with school. We went to a pretty intense high school. Yeah. Um, and I had a lot of homework. So I think I think when it came down to it, you know, my hobbies were computer programming, my screenwriting, and you know, and then school stuff. So I just didn't really have time for music. And I think for me it wasn't a priority. I think there are things that I'm better at and more interested in. So I just kind of phased out of the band at some point. And especially when we started high school, there are all kinds of musicians. So the new bass player became this guy, PJ, who later produced like a lot of the MC, early MC Lar stuff. That's who, right. Who was a friend of, um, I think he was a friend of Tyler Wood, who came on as a as a lead guitarist. Mm-hmm. And, um, but Chris, like I owe this to you. Like, I remember once it was like 9 a.m. I wanted to like us to rehearse super early every Saturday morning. And I lived like way out in the country. And it was like a half hour, 45 minute trip from Pacific Grove and you were you were not trying to like motivate your mom to get you to a, a nine a.m. rehearsal, which you shouldn't have because your mom was a teacher and worked all week. And and one week one weekend you're like, you know, I don't think we can make it. It's far. And I was like, okay, I understand. I totally understood. I was a little like disappointed. Yeah, maybe. yeah. But then I was. That's like was when I discovered how I could sample and loop on my computer. Oh, seriously. So I was like, well, maybe I can try to like play with stuff on my own. And that's when Horace was the band, and then Lars Horace became. The, the like 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 those old Lars Horst CDs. There's like ten of them before Nothing to Fear. Mm-hmm. They are not very good, but it's a lot of samples and like weird yeah. sounds. And that's because, you know, if we'd rehearsed that day, I wouldn't have. I, I don't know if I would have ever gotten around to doing the samples so much. I didn't uh, know that story. That's interesting. You so might have. You. I feel like, and you're you're very welcome. <laughs> um, and all your fans are welcome too. Um, I I feel like you might have just because you were constantly as a kid, constantly making things. And finding new ways to make things. I mean, you you wrote so much music, but you also drew so many comics and you made so many movies. And I mean, you always had something creative going. I think like yeah. it was really intense. You too, though. In, I remember in hindsight. You, you had the Kooky the Cockroach character. That's true. You had you did comics, you did scripts, we made videos together. We made a movie together that then I did a soundtrack for that Fred, who whose dad worked with your dad at the Naval Postgraduate School. He directed the Help Me Find My Lung. I remember Help Me Find My Lung. (laughs) Right before superhero movies were the big thing, too. And before, and you, and the fact that you were up on Lord of the Rings before the movies were made and everything. You know what I mean? Like, you were the guy who showed me that Tolkien was more than just The Hobbit because you knew, like, in in sixth grade, you'd already read all of Lord of the Rings. That's true. I'd read them all a bunch of times. I'm a pretty nerdy kid. If you, the thing was, like, I have few people in my life, but, like, if you told me something was cool, 
you were always so advanced with your taste. You and you wore like the mod jacket and like yeah, the, I did. the hat, the detective hat. <laughs> we were both outliers in high school. It was like really special having like the weird smart friend. I think that's why we got along too, is because we were on a similar wavelength. And like you said, now I hadn't really thought about it this way, but we were often making things together. Yeah, that is kind of like what we do when we'd hang out. And Which I, I hadn't would, thought of necessarily. I, I would force the Lars brand or the Horace brand on it and like name it, make sure that it like tied into that. And I hope that wasn't like I don't, annoying. I don't remember you doing that okay, at all. Good. So that's good. As far as how I found The Who, it's because I, uh, well, I really, you know, I, like I said, I really liked Ghostbusters. And so from there, when I got a little older, I started watching a bunch of old Saturday Night Live stuff and that led me to the Blues Brothers movie. Uh, which, yeah. which I loved. And so I started listening to a bunch of blues music, which is weird for a 12-year-old in the 90s to be listening to, but I just I just kept listening to it. Not just like the Blues Brothers soundtracks, although I listened to those a lot, but I you know, got really, really, really into blues. Um, you and turned then, us all on to blues and the Blues Brothers. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And then my dad was, you know, who grew up in the 60s and 70s, comes in, he's like, oh, I know all these songs because he'd heard them covered by classic rock musicians. Uh, so then he had all of his records. So then I just took my parents' record player and all of their records. Like vinyl? Vinyl, yeah. Wow. And just started listening to those. And I was like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know all these songs. So then I started listening to the Rolling Stones and that went to the Beatles and then the Led Zeppelin and then eventually around to the Who. And yeah. then as someone who was, you know, starting to get depressed basically in, in high school, the Who was kind of the perfect thing for me at that time. And so then I just became obsessed with that. Bob O'Reilly was the theme for our radio show we did for three years. It, uh, I think we did it for three years. Two and a half, three, something like that. Morning Madness, which was Friday, Thursday, and then moved to Friday mornings. Um, our school, Stevenson, had a KSPB was radio station. The fact that we had like a thousand watt radio station that they let these miners run. Right? Like we, we dude, the, some of my favorite memories of my life were those Friday mornings, us talking, catching up. And we, one of us, we get there early and we'd start with Bob O'Reilly. Cause it was like very long. Yeah. Did I say that song title, right? Bob yeah. 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 That's... And teenage wasteland, the chorus. Mm -hmm. And, um, because, and you, I started drinking coffee because you would bring, <laughs> you would bring me a coffee. Cause it was like, we'd have to get up at five after studying till like two in the morning right? and do the show. And like, we, that was like our special time every, every week. We'd have, we'd have that time, but you know, I would play Wesley Willis, or I would like write a love song, like a bad acoustic love song to a girl I had a crush on, and like, okay, it's Lars' song of the week, and like you would like graciously let me play my music, but sometimes it would be horrible, and you'd be like very candid. You'd be like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, there was there was one time when I remember you came in with a new song. You're like, oh, we're gonna do a new segment, and it's gonna be Chris reviews Lars's music, and so and so you played the song, and I was like. Well, it's good, but it's not as good as the one you played last week or something. And immediately, like, you're like, we're cutting to a PSA and you put on a commercial and go in and you go, what are you doing? And you're like, and you know, and I'm and, sorry. No, but I think it's, I think in hindsight, it's, it's pretty fair, right? Because you'd like made this thing and you put it on the air and we played it. And I don't know how many people listen to us, but we, some people listen to us. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, he, like Andrew said, it's these, what, the most powerful student run station. <laughs> west of the Mississippi was like the catchphrase we were supposed to say. Yeah. And what, I don't know if that's true. And then it was a high school station. Like Stanford's radio station was 500 watts. KSBB was a thousand. thousand. Right. That's crazy. That's crazy. And the, while we were in class, they'd port the BBC. So it kind of mm -hmm. had a educational component. And this guy, Hamish Tyler, who, you know, I don't, I don't know if you knew this. I interviewed Sean. I did a podcast with Sean Donnelly. Oh, Sean Donnelly. And yeah. we talked about how, who was one of our peers. We talked about how 
Hamish really had it in for Sean. You know, it had it oh, in for he, Sean. Yeah, he hated Sean. <laughs> Sean would always, you know, say Sean. This is what Sean told this funny story. Hamish was like, you know, Sean, when I think about your show, I think of the word smarmy, like a 7-Eleven parking lot. <laughs> So we were the, like the good kids. And one time, though, I was filling in for someone and someone was doing a remote broadcast of the girls basketball t- t- game. Like these students who were like sports fans would bring mics out and remote. I remember that. And yeah. so I, <laughs> I was they asked me to, to switch on the, <laughs> the basketball game. And I was with this trainee student. And, you know, I just wanted more airtime. And they called in to have a switch on the basketball game. I was like. <laughs> Nah, we're, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we played like Tori Amos and Weird Al for, for two hours. And these kids did the whole game. They, did, they, they didn't know. They didn't know. And so then they came back and um, I really, really got in trouble for that. And I pleaded ignorance. Like, oh, I didn't know the right button to press. I didn't know how to switch them on. So I just kept with the show going. So I didn't want dead air. Oh, if, if Hamish is listening to this, he's going give to you, give you detention. <laughs> Sorry, Hamish. We, I did a compilation a CD. I don't know if I copied it for you. Like our best. I just bits. found it. I just found it because cool. my fiance and I just moved, and I found. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's the pre. Is insectivorous before or after going for your ear? That was after. Yeah. So, so it starts. I have going for your ear. I have insectivorous. I have the morning madness compilation. And I have a couple others. Man, like I would do CDRs and sell them at school, and you know, Chris, it was always like you were always supportive of me. And you would keep help me keep my ego in check. Like that, <laughs> that makes me sound like no, it's just like, mean to you. <laughs> no, you were just like you were the friend. Like you know, I was very like loud and always on stage and assembly and like you know, I was very fearless. And I had in you a friend who like when I was doing something right, you would be honest with me. For instance, so here's an example. So I there was this girl that I had a crush on, and I wrote this song called Annabelle Lee. A, based on Poe's tragic poem about how to crush on her and like like how he felt about Annabelle Lee. But, it's a po- but the poem is about a dead teenage wife cousin, right? Right, right. And so I wrote this song and I wanted to premiere it on the air and I was so excited and it was like out of key and like my voice was the emo lyrics and I hope no one ever finds this song because it's like so, it's the most traumatic event of my life. And <laughs> we played it and like, I remember that moment the week before I'd played the song Insectivorous about eating bugs. Yeah. Which is like, that song, I think, is like kind of aesthetically very similar to what I do now. It's, yeah, you can definitely see sort of the beginning of MC Lars in a lot of it, too, and going for your ear, like a lot of the songs on those CDs. I mean, I mean, you're, you're better now. Thank um, you. Yeah. It was 20 years ago. Yeah. It was about jazzy kind of funky stuff and cho- choruses and silly lyrics and fun versus like out of tune, emo, maudlin. I still do Poe, but like you were like, you were like, you know, you're like this. I instant. You were. You just what you said to me. You said insectivorous is cool. You can keep doing stuff like this, but like don't do songs like this. Like, people don't want <laughs> to so hear. Sorry. Them. No, but like I recently was listening to some of them. And like Chris was right. You were like, you're. You were honest with me because we're both creative artists, and you told me like what I need to hear. And I think that that made me like a better artist. You pushed me to be better, dude. I mean, I think. I mean, so so I'm glad you got something out of it. It sounds. It sounds to me now being an adult hearing that. It sounds unfair for to me for two reasons. Uh, one is that when you're in high school, you're fig- you're experimenting and you're figuring everything out. So the idea that you're playing with different kinds of music, especially the sort of music that is like on at the time and people are listening to, seems perfectly legitimate to me. Um, and I had a, another reason 
and I forgot what it was. Uh, you're saying that like it's good to experiment when you're a teenager. Yeah, and you're especially. I mean, you didn't have, or you hadn't refined a creative voice. You didn't have a brand or like a stage persona at that point, right? For the most part, a lot of it was pre Eminem. Like being yeah, a white dude yeah, that's rapping true. was still like a corny thing in itself, right? Right. But we did have, I think, I think, I mean, I knew you really well because we've been such good friends for such a long time. Right. By that point. And and there are, I mean, I've told you this before, but I think there's, there's, you know, there's MC Lars, which is your stage persona. And then there's Andrew, who, which is you when, you know, you're not on stage. And I think they're two slightly separate people, but they're very similar. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people, even in high school, especially in high school, I think didn't know the difference. A lot of, you know, and I, and I did. So yeah. I could tell you like, oh, okay, this is working. This isn't because I knew what you were trying to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's like in a way, I don't know, like a manager or something or like kind a of. collaborator. And that's why I always dreamed of um, doing, of, I still dream of this one day us writing like a script or doing something together. We did a book pitch for a history of hip hop, which I think was phenomenal. I think, yeah, I, that was a really fun pitch to work on. I, Cause I don't know that much about hip hop. I know more now. You really, um, le- you used to learn, you, it's funny, coming into your apartment, you gave me a stack of books I'd loan you. <laughs> and you really took it seriously, man. And I and I was always, always looked up to you because you were such a great writer. You were such a great writer. In fact, that like they would sophomore year promote or freshman year promote you to the AP European history class because you were such yeah, a good I was writer. A, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I was a pretty good writer. I Definitely for academic writing. If I had wanted to go into academia, it, I would have been you very, would have been very good at it. Did you major in English? I did major in English. So we have that in common. We do have that in common. In college at Vassar, you did a summer internship at Mad Magazine. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was so proud to say my homie had an article in Mad. And I was like, that was awesome, dude. It's cool. It's cool yeah. to be, I mean, I didn't publish a lot of stuff through Mad. Um, I did the internship and the Mad internship. I don't know if it's it's still this way because I know the editorial staff is entirely different. Now it's, they're in LA. Yeah, they moved to LA and they. Yeah. I think, I don't know if, they fired everyone and rehired or or if people decided just not to move um because a lot of the staff was fairly old even when i was there um so i'd imagine they weren't they weren't up for moving across the country Um, but at the time it was a really hands-on internship so it wasn't like you were going and getting coffee and making you know just fielding phone calls you were like in the writer's room with the editors writing jokes that's Um, awesome so so a lot of jokes that i wrote got into the magazine even if my name isn't on them and then afterwards I did a little bit of freelancing, but I wasn't, I hadn't quite figured out, you know, still in college. So you're 20 years old and all of a sudden you're writing for Mad Magazine. I hadn't quite figured out how to be a responsible freelancer, I guess. So at some Mm. point that kind of fell off. So my, I don't have that much stuff that made it into the magazine. I wish I'd kept up on it. Um, But still, it's It's your resume. But yeah, but I mean, it's pretty cool to like, I mean, I have an issue of Mad Magazine. I can open up like this cultural institution and be like, there's my name. And it's only a magazine that I read because you were so into it in oh, middle really? school. That's that's the first time I read it was at your house. That's tight. That's yeah. tight. My mom, being a librarian, would, you know, she'd bring them home. And one time she used to work in Marin County and they had a huge stack they were going to throw out. And she's like, my son might like these. And that I was second grade is when I got into Madden. That sounds right. And so, and I remember, yeah, when we'd be walking in town with our pa- parents, I'd always want to. I remember this, I'd want to go in the drugstore and you're like, oh, looking for the new Mad, right, Andrew? And I was like, yep, Chris, yeah. you know. I mean, because you had, you you bought every issue that came out and read it, like cover, cover to cover. cover. Yeah, and I still subscribe and like, I have a bin that you can't lift. It's too big to lift <laughs> in my parents' basement with all the oh, anyway. Mads and 
So what do you think about the new new editorial staff? I think they are killing it. I'm I've I actually I had fallen off a little bit um just for time and, and money. Um, yeah. Writing about video games on the internet, you don't make a ton of cash. Uh but I picked up a couple of the new ones and I thought they were great. And whoever's running their Twitter feed right now is doing a phenomenal job. One of the editors is this woman, Allie Gertz, and she does a Simpsons podcast that I was on. Oh. And she's also a musician. She's like she's killing it. And like the staff is uh yeah, and I love the design. I love how they brought back the lighter side. Mm-hmm. I love how there aren't ads really. Like not like, as much for a minute. I remember the first dude. This was like such a sad day. The first, and this maybe shows how sheltered I was. <laughs> the first day I, I, you know, I subscribed, and the magazine came. I looked at the back, and it's an Altoids ad with Spy vs Spy. And I'm looking. I'm like, ah ha ha! They're making fun of Altoids. I'm like, hold on, this, <laughs> this is an ad. This is a real ad. They did for a minute to help pay for. What they said to make it color or whatever they yeah. ran ads, and that was such a. I was like, oh, Alfred sold out. Well, it's interesting interning there because you know when I interned there, it was a lot of the editors had been there since like the the eighties at least. I mean, Nick Meglin, uh, who retired just a couple of years after I was there, he was I think one of the founding editors. So he'd been wow. at the magazine sort of the entire time, and they talk about you know how they had to introduce color and how they had to introduce ads, mm-hmm. and it was you know the circulation of the magazine is not what it was in the 60s and 70s at its peak. I mean, it's nowhere close. And partly that's just because people don't read magazines anymore. Partly it's you know no longer this new edgy thing. It's cultural institution. It was like Reddit. In, yeah, kind of. In a way. Like, yeah. But also, they, you know, they were talking about how now in media you can push the envelope so much further. So it's like, you know, this was early 2000s. So South Park had been on the air for what six, seven years, yeah, maybe, and and they're like, you know, you can do South Park now on TV. So this sort of subversive voice and role that Mad played was no longer this sort of edgy, you know, kind of like risque almost like thing for kids. You know, you you could just go online and find you know some random you know strong bad or whatever something that was like right. weirder and like more subversive or in South Park's case like dirtier. And and for them as editors, that was a really hard sort of line to tell because at that point, you know, Matt was owned by Warner Brothers. They had a very specific voice and a very specific demographic that they needed to appeal to. Um, and they couldn't push it as far as they wanted. And like Spy vs. Spy was commentary on the Cold War. Right, exactly. And so it's like these characters are still there, but it's like Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. Yeah. It didn't have the same political agency. Right. I loved... Um, Two things about Mad that I still love. I like the, the music, like the song parodies, and when they would do like a that CD, Mad Grooves, of mm-hmm. all the Mad Flexi discs. Yeah, yeah. That was cool because it was like genre as clothes on like like the, the disco song, the, the Dylan parody. That album's awesome. And I also loved how I would always try to find back issues at yard sales and stuff or, or old comic stores and how it gave people like me and you like a cultural history by making fun of The Godfather and jaws and everything that predated our generation the covers tell the story of american history yeah and pop culture and i think like my pop culture education came from weird al and mad and the simpsons i think politics too if you look right. back at like the issues from the 70s like there's tons of richard nixon gags in there yeah which which is is like kind of funny but like i mean i guess if i was a teenager i would probably be laughing at trump jokes and you know I mean, I laugh at the Trump jokes they have in Mad now. So clearly, they're they're still doing that. Well, that gives that's their that's ninety percent. I know. <laughs> and every past few years, every cover has been a Trump thing because they know it's going to sell. And 
It's good. I mean, I, I, I yeah, it's funny though. They, they're very sharp. The top 20 at the end of the year. The, the top 20 issue is always really good. And the top yeah. 20 issue, even for the editors when I was there, was I think one of their favorite things that they do. And they'd work on it all year, which is kind of a thing. So someone would come up, like a freelancer oh, really? would submit a pitch and they'd be like, well, that's not really great for like a full article, but it's great for a one, you know, one page thing at the end of the year uh-huh. to kind of address this. So then they they had a ca- file cabinet, I think. They'd put all the ideas in there. And then I was never there when they actually put the list together. Would but you was, get to vote or did you have input? I mean, I'd have input. That's dope. As an intern, yeah, you got, they give us so much like power. I mean, like the first day there, they're like, uh, Al Jaffe had submitted a bunch of, do you yeah, remember this? Snappers answer, stupid, answer question. stupid questions. Yeah. And they weren't great. Uh-huh. And so it's the, it's the first day you're there and they're like, yeah, you need to, you, these need to be rewritten. And so they just hand it to you and you're like. And Al Jaffe still gets the credit. Yeah, but that's fine. I mean, that's that, what the editors did too. Sure, like, they punch it up. Yeah, they punch it up. But I mean, that's a crazy thing to do. Like your first or second day there, they're like, yeah, I'll just go rewrite Al Jaffe stuff. And we're like, no, we're not going to do that. We did. But, you know, so you do end up contributing like a lot. And and learning how to collaborate. And I'm sure also that um, they valued having these young kids who were tapped into pop culture who had like a sharp sense of humor. Oh, like, that was huge the for them. The internship kept the magazine relevant. You're yeah. part of that tradition, dude. Yeah, I mean, that's... that's I, they said why they had the internship was specifically to get young writers Fresh trained blood. and up. Yeah, kind of. Were you there when they were doing the like, it was like the yellow cover border, the new mad? Or did that, mm, had that stopped by I then? I think that it stopped by then. Because they extra jokes, but it just looked kind of messy. Yeah, it did. It looked not great. I no think, disrespect. <laughs> I think it was a couple years after that. And you were there after Mad TV had come and gone. And that gave Artie Lang his start and like a lot of... That's right. It did, didn't it? Crazy, dude. Artie, have you read Artie Lang's um, Too Fat to Fish? Is it worth reading? Yes, because it talks a lot about how he was on Mad TV and how what that was like. And then just his insane cocaine binges and like... On the <laughs> I mean, it's, I did My wife really likes Artie Lang and, and so she... I, I didn't really know about him other than Dirty Work and that movie. Yeah. Total tangent. But anyone listening, that book is fantastic. Party Lang. Mm. Space Hacks. Space Hacks. You are you also write comics. I, I have written some comics, um, which is not a huge leap after Mad Magazine, right? It's still basically the same thing. I don't I don't draw, I'm not an artist. But you do you did a, a independent comic book. But I did do an independent comic. So I, I wrote a script for a comic. Um I found went online. I found an artist, um, Jethro Morales. He's incredible. Uh, I hired him. He I sent him the script. He, about a month later, he sent me back some pages. I, I found a colorist who I hired. I sent it to him. He sent it back, you know, pages with you know great looking colors. I did not have any money left for lettering, uh, so I did the lettering myself. And I think that you did the lettering yourself. I did, but I wow. think that's one of the reasons why why I didn't get the book picked up is mm. looking back on it. But you know, lettering is a skill, just like penciling or inking or coloring. Um, and it, a lot of people spend a lot of time practicing it and getting good at it. Um, so I wish I had been able to to get professional lettering, but I, it was my first comic. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I did that. That was, that was a long time ago now. It's about the worst journalist in space who accidentally stumbles on the biggest story in the universe. Uh. Um, so he's a disgraced talk show host, sort of a, I, I came up with the idea right around when Conan O'Brien got fired from the Tonight Show. And then there was that documentary that came out that was following his tour right afterwards. Yeah. And kind of like what he was going through. So it's kind of a Conan O'Brien type who gets fired from his talk show. And so he decides to become a serious journalist, but no one will hire him. So he's got, he recruits this 
female assassin and then Ham the space chimp, who's, you know, the the chimp that the United States, you know, shot into space in the fifties oh. and is now alive because of science fiction stuff that never gets explained. And they're teamed up as sort of this rogue news crew, pirate news crew, who goes right. around and, and tries to find the weirdest stories they can. And so it's just it's just one issue. It's a one and done. Um, I did pitch it around a lot of places. No one bought it, but you can read it online if you go to spacehackscomic.com. Cool. Um, was that on Comixology, too? It wasn't. I should submit it to Comixology. Yeah. Uh, when I came up with it, Comixology was just getting started. And I don't think they had their submission, Comixology submit yet, although I guess I could submit it now. I know it's still running. They publish tons of great stuff through their submit program, all sorts of cool little books that you wouldn't see elsewhere. So And maybe it might have a resurgence. It might. Who you knows? know, it'd be but I think I'm pretty sure that Jethro's moved on to do some pretty big books. Yeah. I'm not I'm not in touch with them a lot. So I don't know if I could do another one, but it's cool. It'd be fun to have people read it. I, it was I, one of the most fun things I've ever done was writing a comic. I just remember how good it looked and how the characters were so interesting and yeah, how you just kind of DIY style just did it, invested your own time and money into it and it was good, man. It was cool. I was yeah, it is fun. You've had a diverse career. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, right. So I write about video games and and comics and superhero movies and that sort of thing. But it started with video games because I'm really interested in narrative design and sort of video game storytelling. We have this in common that it's like, if we want to make money, we have to go out being freelance and mm-hmm. just create the opportunities for ourselves. Yep. And you had a great article. You did the Mashable article on how to create the best Mario Maker levels. Right? Yeah, I love how much research you did. <laughs> I mean, I, I follow your stuff. No, I went back. I was like, I want to ask Chris very specific questions. And this, the things you listed are all things that are 100% how I have created my best songs. And and every successful thing I've done as MC Lars was this list. And it was just like mind-blowing to me that like, can I tell you what I discovered from your article? Yes, you, can, you absolutely can. So here are the five things you list, mm-hmm. how to create the best Mario Maker levels. First one, stealing, right? Yep. And that goes back to what we were talking about like when we first did that our, our first show is, with our band was doing a parody with the Better Than Ezra thing. Right, or how we learned how to make the HyperCard games yeah, by the, stealing the code. Stealing the code, and but making it different and better. Right. And I found with every song I did that people cared about, it was... If it wasn't autobiographical, it had to have like pop culture signposts or a parody element mm-hmm. or, you know, stealing. And in the context of the article, you talk about like basing it on other Mario games that have worked well. Right. Yeah. So that that's the first one. Is that still true that, that your songs that are autobiographical or pop culture parodies do better than the others? Well, because it seems like you branched out like that to me, but... Yeah, I started, you know, after The Graduate, the Robot Kills record was a lot more autobiographical. Mm -hmm. And then Lars Attacks is really autobiographical. And I was like, that record was purposely, other than the name, I didn't want to do anything that was pop culture related. And I it was kind of like playing, you know, some people still love that record, but like, um, I realized that the strongest stuff, like my earlier stuff, like Signing Emo, or The Hot Topic is not punk rock song, like... The, or even the Robot Kill song, those are all reference to musical or pop culture signposts. Mm-hmm. And so I've incorporated that more. And now these days, it's like, you know, I did the Poe EP that right. your fiance helped with the with the puppetry on that. Right. And um, that, the Poe stuff, the Lit Hop stuff connects to literature. And that's like a perfect balance because okay. I, I can write as that character 
using those signposts. Yeah, so that I makes sense. I steal, but I do it in a way where, you know, it's 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 not fresh to take, like if I were to take some nerd young nerdcore guy's song and chorus and lyrics <laughs> and just cover it yeah, and not, right. that would be why. Right. I couldn't get away with that. So like so 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 doing it creatively, which in Mario Maker is like you have to what? If you want to recreate like your favorite Mario two themed levels, but as Mario three sprites, that's fresh. Right, right. right? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think so. It's been a while. I haven't actually reviewed the article, I think, as recently as you have. But yeah, but also, I clearly made a lot of money writing about Mario Maker because there's like three or four different things about it. But <laughs> That game was such a hit. I, I loved that game. Yeah. I, I'm waiting for the, for the updated version on my Switch. They're going to do one? I, I don't know. I hope so. Um, the second one, stick to the theme, right? That was mm-hmm. your second advice. And mm-hmm. that goes back to the branding and like how I was always trying to... <laughs> use Lars and everything and, and use the same names and um, stick to it, sticking to a theme that works. So in the context of the game, you mean like make it a, a all desert level or, or make it, I remember you had some examples or make it like um, aesthetically unified. Aesthetically unified. And I think mechanically unified too. If, if, if you're going to do, I think, and this is what the Mario games do so well is every level is built not every level, but most levels are really built around one central idea. And there's a, and I can't remember what the actual term for this is, but it's it's a manga concept where there's like four panels on a page. And, and so the first panel introduces an idea. The second panel complicates it, but, but it's still sort of an introduction. The third panel puts a twist on, on that idea. And then the fourth is a resolution. And so the Mario Mario levels kind of follow that. You can see that they mm. follow the same idea. And so sticking to the theme is really like if you're going to do uh, a level based on say warp pipes, you know, make it just about warp pipes. Don't all of a sudden yeah. throw in a crazy thing with like moving platforms because that's not the theme for the level. Well, and that ties into songwriting because your chorus I've always said is your thesis. And if you have to, and you want to have a strong, purposeful chorus. You, you can't be too vague. And in your verses, you know, MC Chris said this to me. He said that whenever you're writing a lyric, if you don't know what to say, look at the lyric before and ask yourself what questions the preceding lyric is asking. Oh, that's you. great advice. It's great advice. And that's how, like, sticking to a theme. Like, that's when I started to get in the flow and do that. And then, you know, like, this goes on to your next one. Keep it simple. <laughs> and editing like I would sometimes I find my best songs I write, I write 64 128 bars and then pick my favorite 16 mm-hmm. so keep it simple but you allow yourself through you allow yourself to do that through subtraction right and at the, I guess in the Mario Maker game we're really taking this metaphor <laughs> to, to the end, but like keep it simple like you meant by that like aesthetically or I think I think again it's it's part of the same keeping your theme and it's 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 kind of the same advice in a way and it, this is something that I find for writing too especially not so much with with journalistic writing um, but definitely creative writing you start by you know like you said put you put out everything out there you play with all of your ideas and then you've got to cut it down and see what fits right yeah yeah um, and so keeping it simple I think you know in the context of Mario is is again it's like don't put too many ideas in one level. Mm-hmm. Split those out into separate levels, levels if you've got yeah. that many ideas, because it just helps with your focus. But it's like like you said, it's the same thing for any creative process. If you have too many ideas going on at once, it, you're going to lose the main point. Yeah, and it's going to be less powerful. My favorite the Mario Lever games were like those super upvoted ones where you just press a button and he falls through the <laughs> entire level. Yeah, those are so cool. Those are tight. Like that. That is an art, man. 
Like to whoever those people who design those. I can't even imagine. I mean, maybe they know the game so well that it doesn't take them so long. But it seems to me like that would take like a year. Like, yeah, so much time to work, make work. And also make look at your fourth one, make it challenging. And um, that that applies to so much so much art because good art and like The Simpsons invites you to ask more questions and reward you for paying attention. Right. So you want to make a Mario Maker level that is worth playing because it's not the ones that where you fall and through it is those are fun. But like, yeah, I mean, I think those are great levels for what they are, but I wouldn't I don't know if I would call them like real game levels. It's almost more like a toy or a show. Which right. is which is not to invalidate it at all because it's I mean it's doing exactly what it's setting out to do and it's super fun to watch and it's I mean crazy those things are insane yeah but but at the same time um, if you're not interacting is it like really a video game I don't I don't know that's kind of what makes games special is the interactive element right totally that was the whole thing where Roger Ebert took umbrage with his post right. about how video games are not art he says they're simple and you're within a confined structure. But that seems like a generational view. Yeah, I'm not. Rest he, in peace, no doubt. But oh, I mean, he's a yeah. fantastic. I mean, he's like the best film critic. But yeah. but yeah, I mean, he got a lot of flack for that, and rightly so. So I mean, I'm not sure he'd ever played a video game um, before he said that. But also, it's evolving, and it's it's a new. I mean, video games are still so new, and especially when it comes to narrative. Like we're just past. You know, back in when they came up with film. It was like a big deal to see like a train moving on the screen or like someone sneezing, yeah. right? And I feel like video games are only just starting to get past sort of that point in their evolution. Like, okay, so we know what the technology is and we kind of know what it can do, but we yeah. still haven't found the best ways to like actually use it to tell a story. Yeah, and you said something earlier about how like you see yourself doing, what did you say, like interactive, scripts for interactive games? Yeah, I mean, with I think in the industry they call it narrative design and and- some of that is script writing and some of it is designing how an interactive experience can tell a story and sort of the back and forth between the player and the game and then sort of through the game by proxy, the developer and whatever story they're trying to tell. Because that's what games, you know, a game is the experience that you have playing it is, is where the story comes from and the emotional response that you have. And so something like Fortnite, like you might say, Oh, it doesn't have, or at least Fortnite Battle Royale, doesn't have like a coherent story. I mean, it has plot events that happen every couple of weeks, but does it have a coherent narrative? Eh, I don't know. Uh-huh. But it definitely is a story engine because every time you play, it's totally different, right? It's a different narrative. And having, who you're playing and with. And who you're playing against and what happens in those games. Yeah. And it's not always an interesting story. Not if you play like I do, but it's it's a story just the same. And, and that's kind of creating those opportunities and figuring out how to guide the emotional response of the players is really fascinating to me. And how do you, you mm. keep that interactivity in your game going while still giving an authored experience is, I mean, it's really challenging. I think that's why a lot of games, especially from, you know, five, 10 years ago, just threw cutscenes in and they're like, that's the story. Yeah. But, yeah. Eh, that's not a great gaming story. It might be an okay movie story, but it's not a great gaming story. Yeah. Like I remember, um, Back in when you moved to Brooklyn after you graduated and we, we were hanging out a lot. And I remember I came by, I brought my PSP over and I was so excited about the King Kong game and I was showing you. And that was an example of an intellectual property that was ported that didn't 
really work because it was a lot of long cut scenes. It was so exciting. I remember I was so disappointed to sh- that it was so hard and like not very well designed. It was like a good idea, a good example of trying to achieve what you were talking about. Right. I mean, it's it's like I said, it's it's early times still. It's kind of the wild west. I mean, people are yeah. getting there, and and there are certainly great stories that have been told through games. I mean, there, a lot of them. I mean, like the game Papers Please. I think is. I don't know if you've played no, it. No, I haven't played. You that. play. You play a a person who runs like a a border crossing booth basically oh, in a wow. totalitarian country and so you have to all you papers, do is please okay papers please and yeah. all you're doing is you're looking at sort of the passports and the paperwork of the people going through and then you have to decide do they make it or do they not but they start asking you questions being like well i have the right paperwork but my husband doesn't can you mm. let my husband in anyway um so it forces you to make these choices but it's also it's very much you making those choices as an individual it's not the game sort of saying oh your character now has gone and so it's like skyrim where you can be good or evil right kind of yeah yeah um but more focused than skyrim I yeah, guess. more yeah. again in terms of like keeping it simple yeah you know it's it's still a very specific experience that you're having with this game because it's a game that's made by like one person right that's cool there's a, that's where a lot of the Best games come from those indie games and like on Steam and stuff like that. Yeah. Like how people be able to develop from what back in the day, like the AOL hypercard stack I know, right? mentality. And and then like with Five Nights at Freddy's, seeing that hot topic and like Oh, that's crazy. That's crazy, right? Were you f- close in following that story when that happened? Um yes. I mean I'm not I haven't I mean I've played Five Nights at Freddy's. I haven't played all of the games and I haven't beaten I don't know if I've beaten any of them. But yeah, I mean, it's huge, right? Yeah. And I think what's interesting with the storytelling and sort of the way that those games are made is that the plot is kind of purposefully not clear mm-hmm. in terms of like the backstory and the history. So it's all little hints. And so it just let like like Reddit and YouTube just went crazy with like fan theories and then contributing to the story. And then I think yeah. that those ideas then got incorporated into the later games because the guy who makes them, Scott Cawthon, he just, I mean, he makes games really fast. That's awesome. You know, so he's just, you know, cranking these things out and they're all like responding to the dialogue with the fans and created like sort of this sense of community around it, which is I think one of the reasons why it became so popular. Like the friend I was talking about earlier who lives in China, her son, who's 10 now, is obsessed with Five Nights at Freddy's. And like when he comes, he'll just tell us like, all the fan theory, like every time he comes, it's like info dump on like the Five Nights at Freddy's like fan theories. Yeah, it's pretty, but like it's fascinating. And he like knows all these characters and stuff and it's only like half of like officially canon and half just like what people are saying online. (laughs) But it's like, it's crazy. This whole mythology that sort of organically sprung up around these games. He then incorporated as part of the canon. Into the thing. And then, so then, yeah, so then Nico, this kid will go and he'll be like, you know, and then he brings out like these toys that he got at like Walmart yeah, or something. Yeah, right. It's so mainstream and that's cool. Yeah. And it's like the auteur of the of the single designer going on to like create and affect this whole experience. That is art. No It's doubt. interesting. It, totally, right? Yeah. It's in, and, and now as we step into VR, like have you been commissioned to do any pieces on VR games um, yet? I did... S- you mean writing about? Yeah. Um, really early on, I did some coverage of the PlayStation VR system. Um, right when they first announced it, I was yeah. at the, the, I think it was at the PlayStation Experience Conference is where they first were like, we're doing VR. And they had a bunch of demo kiosks set up. So I, I did some coverage of it then. Um, otherwise, I've just used it. Do you it's enjoy pr- Do you like it? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Have you used, heard of the company The Rift? No. 
or the void. The void is what they're called. They they do installations. Actually, I was I was back east uh, this summer in New York um, because Andrew was getting married. And, yes, uh, and I had a couple of days in New York uh, City beforehand. So I went to Manager Sodes, which I would never have gone to otherwise to do a Ghostbusters like VR thing. Cool. And uh, that was incredible because that's actually, you know, like a, a physical space that they built. So you're not just sitting there. You're actually walking through with a, go- with a proton with a pack proton pack, and you've got the goggles Where is on. It? It's in Madison. Where is it? It's in Times Square. Wow. Um, and they actually have one in Glendale, which is here, which is where I had no idea. Are. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's and it's so it's like you'll walk out on, say, like a rickety bridge and you've got the the headset on so it looks like you're outside like walking on this bridge between two manhattan skyscrapers God. and the bridge is like you're on something that's actually wobbling and they're pumping wind in so you're feeling this stuff but you're also you know if you took the goggles off you'd just be in like a room with like a moving must like, be must platform. be scary right yeah but it's it's incredibly convincing yeah 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 and it's uh the whole thing like descartes talks about how like our senses or how we perceive the world and that's all we have. We experience things in a fresh way when we allow ourselves to do that, right? Like the mm-hmm. idea that like we're really basically these blank slates and VR is cool because it taps into that. You can really, and then that whole second when you take it off, it's very disorienting. It's incredibly disorienting. And weird. Or even if it just glitches, like yeah. that's that's the thing. Like, I mean, that's why people get sick. Yeah, yeah. When they, some, when they do VR, if it like doesn't match up like with what you, how you perceive it should be, like if the thing stutters or freezes, and all of a sudden your body's like, whoa, like, yeah. like there's something wrong with my senses, so I must be sick. You love Ghostbusters like I love Roger Rabbit. I do. I do love Ghostbusters. And um, <laughs> were, you a fan of, were you a fan of the game they did a few years ago? Well, maybe it was 10 years now. That they- yeah, the game was the game was good. The yeah. game, the, the opening moment, have you played it? I remember seeing it at Comic-Con. They had like a booth that they were running test stuff. I haven't played it. Yeah, I think at the time it was very exciting for those of us who like Ghostbusters because they had gotten the cast back ah, to do the voices, including wow. Bill Murray, who's been very hesitant to return um, as as Peter Vankman. Uh-huh. Um, Why? I, well, I don't think he had a great time filming Ghostbusters 2. Um, the way he tells the story is that he was shown a very different script, and then when he showed up on set, it was much less character-driven and a lot more special effects heavy. Okay. And he doesn't want that experience again. He just also doesn't like doing sequels. The fact that he even did one Ghostbusters sequel and then did a cameo in the new one is kind of amazing. Ghostbusters 2 is really good. I feel like it's unfairly maligned. <laughs> like I was talking to MC Chris about this because he did, he loves Ghostbusters 2 and like Ghostbusters also. And that his point was how much better Ghostbusters 1 is. And it's great. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think the sequel is horrible. Do you? I don't love the sequel as an adult. I loved it as a kid because it's just more Ghostbusters. And it's it's a little closer in tone to the cartoon, which I think is genius. Yeah, and I still think is genius. Yeah. Um, I think Ghostbusters Two has great set pieces. I think like there's the scene with the dancing toaster that I think is incredibly funny. And I think it's got a lot of good one-liners. I think it falls apart on a macro level um, in that it's just it's very repetitive, or it's it's very much structurally like Ghostbusters One. You know, there's the the, the what is it? The Statue of Liberty is walking down the street. Um, you know, instead of Mister Stay Puffed, um, the uh-huh. arc that the characters go through, they kind of, you know, took away the growth from the first movie and then redo it in the second one. So I feel like that's kind of where it gets a lot of its. It doesn't feel fresh. The first one is very fresh and a very scrappy feeling movie. The second one feels uh-huh. a little bit more polished, but also like 
okay, it's just kind of more of the same. It's it's not as interesting. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. But don't you think it's like, when I think of Ghostbusters, I think about like Rick Moranis joining the team and like all like those, those iconic, you know what I'm saying? I, I do know. know what you mean. It feels like it. People love Ghostbusters so much because it goes deep. And that second movie, there are a lot of worse sequels, I guess. Is oh, there are many, many worse sequels. And, and like, one. I can only think of the one example of a sequel that's better is Terminator 2 to me. Better than Terminator 1. I don't know. In my, in my, that you're going to do for Empire 2, I guess. Empire yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there are better. I think some of the Marvel movies, I mean, I think Winter Soldier is better than, say, the first Captain America movie, although I like all of them. Um, yeah. Civil War Civil War is better than the first Captain America movie. Did, um, do, did you see the um out of Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows? No, I didn't. Pretty is tight. it good? I yeah, I heard it's be- I heard it's great. I think it's better than the first Michael Bay Ninja Turtles. Is it? Yeah, it's phenomenal. There's some great there's a uh, without spoiling it, there's a great like really emotional friendship scene at the end. It looked fun too. Like, I don't know, and like they're like Krang and Bebop or Rocksteady in like live action. Like that's awesome. It's great. <laughs> I would put it on I would put on your to watch list. Yeah. Anyway. And anyone who hasn't seen Out of the Shadows, Tribe One and I did a song about he talks about how much he's gonna hate it and I talk about how you just need to open your heart up to, to sequels. <laughs> it's, it, that was on my on Patreon. It was called Cautiously Optimistic for Ninja Turtles 2. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> what new games are you into? Well, so there's a game that came out. It's it's almost a year old at this point. I think it came out last January, last February. It's called Into the Breach. And it's a strategy game with mechs. Um, and it's it's kind of a strategy game, but it feels almost more like chess with robots and aliens. Um, it's cool. phenomenal. I can't stop playing it. What is um, it on Steam or? It's on. I think it's it's on Steam. It's on Switch. Uh, I know you can get it on. What is it uh, GOG? I think if you want it DRM free, um, it might be on the other consoles. I don't think so. Um, but that's great. There's there's a game. Um, actually, the the next game by the guy who created Papers Please. Is called Return of the Oberdin, and it's it's a murder mystery on a ship where this cargo ship in the 1800s has gone missing and then shows up a few months later, mm. and you are an insurance adjuster and you have to figure out what happened to everyone on the ship because there's no one there, um, and that's that's great and it's super cool looking because they made it look or the the guy Lucas Pope made it look like a really old like Mac, like like old black okay. and white like monochrome like yeah two-bit kind of thing so it's super stylish um the murder mystery part which is i think i heard someone on twitter or saw someone on twitter refer to it as like murder sudoku okay. um, is kind of how the gameplay works out yeah. so you have to observe these scenes and you don't actually watch the murders you just get like a frozen moment in time that you can walk around sort of and explore see what's happening at this one precise moment. And from there, you have to figure out who everyone on the ship is and how they died. So you travel back in time. You travel back in time. Interesting. Every time you examine a corpse to the uh, moment that okay. the corpse died. But you don't see everyone die. It's, yeah. it's a little hard to explain, but when, when you play it, it's very intuitive. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that game is great. And then, I, you know, I really liked the Sony Spider-Man game that came out this fall. Yeah, that was a huge hit. That was huh? a huge hit. Yeah, that's... The first great game for PSP was the Spider-Man game in, back in 06. They always do well with Spider-Man on, on Sony. <laughs> you know, they, they always <laughs> yeah. will. Um, what's the ship game you mentioned? What's uh, Return of the Oberdin. So that seems like a lot of the games that are successful are ones that um, play with context, right? That play with like context and gameplay. And um, Undertale is another game yeah. that kind of has done that, right? Like yeah. changes 
ties into a specific genre, but does a re- uh, interesting twist. Are you a fan of Undertale? Um, I'm a fan of it. I'm not as obsessed with it as some people can be, but I've played it twice all the way through, I think. And it's, you know, because it is a game that, that sort of rewards you for replaying. Yeah. Because, you know, it remembers your save and remembers what you've done. And then we'll reference that in subsequent playthroughs. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. That's an interesting game. And that really does play with conventions, you know, by being like, well, should you, you know, when you're playing a role-playing game like this, should you be murdering all the creatures that you come across? Because maybe they're friendly, you know, friendly, or maybe they have families. And like, I mean, it's much deeper than that, but I don't want to like spoil it. Have you played it? Uh, I've watched, I, I have it, and I've watched YouTube videos of okay. it. But, I, but I'm going to, so I'm, re, I'm bringing back um, my Twitch streams next year. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, that's going to be one of the first games I play. Oh, you got to watch out if you're streaming that. People are going to come into Twitch and tell you the right way to play it and you need to ignore them. Okay. Because it's a better it's a better game if you I think if you don't know what to do before you start to. I mean, that sounds like a stupid That's interesting. recommendation, but I think there are Undertale fans who can get a little not hostile, but confrontational if you're not playing it in search of, you know, the best ending. Okay. And and it's designed to surprise you. Yeah. along the way so if people are kind of there being like well no you did this wrong like don't stress or, about or it might spoil it yeah or don't yeah yeah i would say don't worry too much about playing it the right way like explore and okay may i'll do it with, with chat it. off or whatever yeah right or or just ignore like the chat um are you a fan did you play the new smash brothers i did you like it i do i like it a lot i haven't played it yet it's, it's pretty tight? fun yeah it's pretty good um and were you a fan of mario odyssey I was a pretty big fan of Mario Odyssey. I would not yeah. say it's my favorite Mario game. Oh, what is? Well, I I mean, nostalgia-wise, Super Mario World is uh-huh. going to be my favorite. Uh-huh. Um, Mario 3 is probably the better of those two. And then New Super Mario Brothers Wii was really good for the, mm. the 2D ones. And then Super Mario Galaxy is incredible Yeah, for me. Um, Mario Odyssey didn't have quite enough platforming challenges and had a little bit, not too much exploring, but... But a lot, I felt like a lot of it was like, just go here and look around a little bit, which is weird because normally I really like exploring in games. It's like my favorite thing to do. Yeah. But for Mario, I, I think I want more of a mechanical challenge. Okay. And, you know, I want to jump around and and master, you know, difficult platforming things. Yeah. But don't you feel like... But they, that's a taste thing. Yeah. So so it had less plat- platform challenge than like than previous ones i felt i felt like than some of the previous ones yeah interesting you know because i had played i was got really into mario odyssey especially when i was doing my twitch stuff and then the last mario game i had really been into was mario world because when i have the gamecube i only played like the simpsons and and (laughs) mario kart right you know and that was my last um my last nintendo so oh yeah, and Wii U, I had Wii U, and I never played any of the Mario games. So I, I was just like blown away, like, dude, this little plumber has come a long way. Yeah, no, so so if you have a Wii U, it should play the Wii games. So definitely check out the Mario Galaxy games. Can you get Mario Galaxy um, through the, 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 the Switch so store? No. They do it, like, they want to make sure it's like so. official big releases, right? When they Yeah, or something. Over. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they remastered it at some point. Yeah. Because it's really good. Um, but I mean... It sounds like I didn't like Mario Odyssey. I loved Mario Odyssey. I took like three days off from work to play it, and like it counts as think, work. Right? Yeah, it kind of. It's a tax write off. Are you happy with the direction Nintendo has been going? I am happy with the direction that Nintendo has been going, but I'm less hard on them than a lot of people because they're always doing weird and interesting stuff, and it's weird and interesting, and it doesn't work out. 
I'm more forgiving of that. I mean, I understand that there's a real worry that if they really blew it big time and for the number of experiments in a row, that that would not be good for the future health of the company. Yeah. But like, you know, like this summer, like everyone's like, oh, are they going to come out with a new Switch in 2018? And what they came out with was this Nintendo Labo thing. I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's like, it's like cardboard props yeah, that you awesome. build and like you put your Switch into it and you can build like little machines. And like a keyboard. And like keyboards and like robot suits and stuff. Like, yeah, I mean, nice. it's super cool. And like, who would have ever thought that that was like a thing? Yeah. Would be a thing. And but Nintendo comes up with that like weird stuff all the time. And I love that because it's pushing video games or interactive media in like a new direction. You it's know, art. It's the it's, art it's, element. Yeah. It's it's at least approaching it, you know? And I'm always whenever I can, like I love to read books about Nintendo, like the Console Wars, which is um have you read that? Yeah, that's a great book. And then there's one about it's called it's something about Super Mario. I forget the title of it, and I tweeted about it and um it's a book just about Mario that Tim got me for Christmas, my friend Tim. Oh, yeah. And that book is great because it goes all the way up basically to Switch. And it sets up being like, okay, so what was Nintendo going to do next? And it's Mario as this metonymy, right, mm-hmm. of all the things Nintendo has done well and done poorly. And it ends with this, dude, this is like crazy. It ends with this. Like it talks about people in China who are like manufacturing the consoles mm-hmm. and stuff that working conditions were so bad that people <laughs> were jumping off the roof to kill oh themselves. Oh my God. And that he says like as a game based on a guy who jumps to escape his death, this irony of like first world capitalism creating this situation, the irony is not lost. Like he has all the writer wow. has all these gr- That sounds twists. amazing. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, that's depressing. He, but he's not just it's not just fan service, you know. Right. He he does stuff like stuff like that, puts it in context and oh, it's just called Super Mario and it's by Jeff oh. Ryan. And um it's on Audible and yeah, it's called How Nintendo Conquered America. Have you oh yeah, I've, heard I've, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. So I recommend that to all the listeners at home. And yeah, like how do you there's with only so many hours in the day, how do you you're always so up on interactive culture, movies and games? How do you do it? Well, it's my job, right? Right. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's. I mean, there are a couple of things. I work at home, uh-huh. so that helps because I have no commute. Uh-huh. That's um, cool. So I save a lot of time there and my schedule I set myself. Um, but, you know, you just have a little, tra- you know, I have, I have Twitter feeds and RSS feeds and all kinds of stuff set up for all the different news services. And it's all org- really organized so I can be like, okay, here's, you know, what the, the video game news that broke past hour, here's the comic book news that broke in the past hour and just kind of keeping an eye on all that um there's a lot of stuff i don't know about you know i know i've played fortnite and i've written about fortnite but i'm not an expert on fortnite and Mm -hmm. it's the biggest game in the world right now right um there are you know franchises like you asked me about diablo uh in an email a couple weeks ago i just played diablo you know diablo 3 it's the first diablo game i ever played you know a couple weeks ago so there are definitely holes you can't keep track of all of it so partly it's it's, I guess, as a freelancer, you try to focus on the things you think you can get paid to write about. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, I know, okay, so Red Dead Redemption 2 is coming out or came out a month ago. But, you know, before that, I was like, I was gauging, you know, okay, well, I know I have this many pieces to write about this or that I can. Here's the pitches that I've landed about it, you know, with, with various editors. And so a lot of it is is planning ahead for release dates and making sure you're on top of the things that you need to cover and also deciding, you know, oh, well, okay, I'm going to cover this. So uh, this is what I'm going to go deep on. And maybe 
maybe I'm not going to go as deep on this other thing. You know, so like I haven't seen the Venom movie yet, even though I write right. about comic books. And Venom was this huge hit. Right, right. Um, but I didn't think it was, you know, something I was going to be interested in or I didn't think it was going to be as popular as it was. I can't remember the exact rationale. But so I was like, OK, well, Venom, I'm not putting together any pitches for Venom. Right. Okay. Right. So your brand is like a lot of how you balance your time and how you try to figure out, predict what's going to be popular. I think that's that's part of the job when you're doing freelance entertainment writing. And I think it's it's crucial because you can't be on top of everything. No. Maybe maybe if you're in college or in your early 20s. But, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm in my mid 30s. And I've, you know, I've been in a relationship for 15 years now. I got a dog. I got a life that you got to pay attention to. So you just got to prioritize. Sure. And, and figure out. And again, you know, it's, it's cynical, but monetization is a huge part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, but what's interesting, Chris, is how both of us, if we were to look at our 11 year old selves and be like, you are a professional video game reviewer, writer, pop culture. Right. And you're like show business star. <laughs> like that's crazy to me. It's, it will never not be weird to me to like, meet an MC Lars fan. Like I was wearing an MC Lars shirt when I was walking the dog a couple weeks ago. I think I told you this in an email. Right. And this guy stops me and he goes, MC Lars. He's like, I've you know listened to him since I was in high school. The guy's like 22 or 23. So right, like right. high school was like four years ago for him. But still, and I was like, oh yeah, I just uh, just got back from, you know, his wedding. And he's <laughs> like, he's like, what? Seriously? He's that crazy. He's like, that's crazy. Like, you know, hot topic is not punk rock. And I was like, yep, you, you, you know, MC Lars too. That will never not be the weirdest thing to me because like, I mean, I remember after you took your first guitar lesson, we had this, this church camping retreat and like, you like knew like one chord, and two I chords. And sucks so bad. Well, yeah, because yeah. it's the first time you yeah. ever played guitar in your life. Like, there's no way you're going to be good. And you're like, guess what song this is? And there's like, you know, like three minutes between each chord. And, and it was me and our friend Graham. And we were like, yeah, sorry. We, we know that you're trying, but we can't figure out what the song is. So you had to tell us. Um, it was probably like, come, come As You Are by Nirvana. Yeah, I think that was because we had the same guitar teacher. That I think that was the first one. thing he taught yeah. everyone. Yeah. Um, um, and, you know, I remember because sometimes it's weird. Like once we, you were in, we were in Mar Vista working on a writing project and we went to get coffee and the dude working there, you remember he said? Oh, yeah. yeah. He goes, he goes, he goes, we're both buying coffee. And he goes, have you heard MC Lars? Because you kind of look like him, but not really. Yeah. That- <laughs> so this guy, Moses, who was a DJ who ended up, I, he came to Warp Tour and like he was a, a really great producer. Oh, really? Randomly. But like, that was so funny that you were there when he said that. Yeah. Me. That was so, I forgot about that. That's so funny. <laughs> sometimes it's weird. And sometimes it's like, I bet you wake up sometimes and like you look at, you look at your, you wake up here in your awesome apartment and you are like, what do I, what do I have to do today? Oh, review and learn about pop culture. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it's so, it's the weirdest job. Cause yeah. like Rebecca, my fiance will come home. She's like, what did you do today? And so like yesterday it was like, well, you know, I wrote a thing about like Spider-Man and I wrote about some Star Wars stuff. And then I did some, you know, Red Dead Redemption work. And it's like that's not real work. Like, I mean, it is, it is, it's, it's a lot of work and it's really long hours and or, you don't get paid very much. So it's, it's definitely a job, but it's also, it's ridiculous that this is a thing that you can do to support yourself. So I do a lot of work for Zergnet, which is if you haven't heard of Zergnet, you've apps and you, you do pop culture, you follow pop culture on the internet. You have absolutely seen it. It's, it's a lot of, if you ever seen the phrase, the untold truth of sure. X, it's that company I've yeah. written, Many untold truths of different video games. And, you know, it's clickbaity, but, you know, when you're writing it, you try to make it as interesting or as valuable as possible. It's not, you know, we're not doing the diet pills. We're not doing the one weird trick that doctors 
you know, don't want you to know. Yeah, you, you try you try to make it interesting. You try to make it valuable for people. And then, you know, if it doesn't work for those sorts of things, then you move on and you do the next one and you learn and you try to make it better. And again, it's clickbaity kind of, but like, again, you're not going to click on like the weird connections between Star Wars and Game of Thrones and like look for something life changing. You know, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, but there's like, there's a contract with the reader. And if it's entertaining and someone read, reads something that I write and it's like, oh, that's fun or that's interesting or it makes them laugh. Like, I'm kind of okay with that. I'm okay with that being the end all experience. If you can entertain people, that's kind of a gift. Yeah. Or was Roger Rabbit says, you know, a laugh is a powerful thing. Sometimes in life, it's the only thing we have, like getting a reaction from someone, whether they go, huh, or they laugh or they're entertained or they like see something into it. And like, you know, Chuck Klosterman is, is someone who, you know, I see him in your, that tradition. I see you in that well, tradition, <laughs> like that, that saying surprising things. And that's an art to like being a postmodern pop culture author. And yeah, man, I'm always, I'm always proud of you. And I always brag about that. I know Aww. you and I always try to retweet <laughs> your, your, your tweets. And when, when, when I feel like my audience will be into it. Uh, yeah. I, I know when I get an Andrew retweet because it's the only time I get any notifications from Twitter. So it'll be like nothing for days. And all of a sudden my phone goes crazy. And it's like, well, I guess Andrew, like Chris scores again. Yeah. Um, and so the last thing on your mashable, how to create the best Mario maker levels. Is oh yeah. <laughs> no when to quit. And on that note, Maybe we'll, we'll wind things down. That sounds great. You are, so Chris W. Gates on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. And ChrisTheWriter.com? Yep, that is my writing for portfolio. And where else can people like follow you? Are you on Instagram too? I'm not on Instagram. Um, obviously, if you go to ZergNet, if you go to their video game website, svg.com, I've got a lot of stuff up there. I just started this week doing some news posts for uh, Digital Trends, which is a tech site, but it's all entertainment stuff I'm doing. Um, I have a couple of things up on GameSpot. That's where that Game of Thrones article is. Yeah. Um, and then I, Every Geek is a site that I actually own and update. Um, EveryGeek.net. Wow. And you bought that domain? Yeah. Good job. How many hours a day do you spend writing? How do you discipline yourself? This will be the last question. Okay. I mean, I've been working at home. I used to do computer programming. And even when I did that, I worked at home. So I'm pretty good at just getting up and going. Like I have not needed to learn discipline for that for a while. I think I start writing usually at about 9.30 or 10.00. And I usually start, stop around six or seven. Um, it's a long day. Yeah, it's a long day. But there are breaks. So I'll usually take a break to walk the dog. I'll take a break to walk, you know, take a shower. If I'm in an exercising phase, I'll take a break to exercise. You know, so, it, so it's not solid because I, I can't do that. I don't know about you, but I can't sit there and do creative stuff for like 12 hours straight. I have to do it in like two hour chunks and then take a break. Yeah. When I'm in the studio, I can get in a flow though and do like six, seven hours. See, that's crazy to me. I believe it, but it's crazy. That, But that is different because that will the song will have been written and that's doing performance takes. Mm. It's like being on a set for a movie, right? Like right, when it, right. And especially when working with a producer who kind of like can push me in a certain way. Um, but yeah, I no, I don't, I can't write for that long. I need to like reset the neurons. Right. And I think your brain needs time to like kind of work things through, especially if something isn't working. It's like, the best thing I can do, and I never do it, I should, is I just take breaks and like play video games or, you know, don't look at a screen even, like read a book or yeah. take a walk or something. And, and often the problem will be solved by the time you start up again. I get my best ideas when, when I'm not forcing them. Yeah, me know? too. And that's like all these, all these tricks. And tips. <laughs> well, so if you kids listening at home, if you, uh, if you want to be a pop culture writer, <laughs> you know, what would you tell, what's one thing you would have told, you know, if, you, we, imagine if you and I had gone in a time machine to meet our 11-year-old selves. 
um, what's what would you have told yourself like advice and knowing that the young Chris would listen? Um, right. If you want to be a pop culture writer, don't wait for someone to hire you. I started doing this, you know, I was a computer programmer. I never wanted to do computer programming full time, but it paid pretty well for a right out of college job. So I did it. And then it was time to become a writer. And I thought I was going to do screenwriting. Um, and I still play with that, but I don't love the film industry as it turns out. Uh, so I, but I was playing a lot of games and I got really interested in game storytelling and I started a blog, um, that's no longer online, but I just started writing my own stuff and posting it and I, no one really read it, but I, you know, learned a ton of stuff about how to put the articles together. I learned how to do the web publishing stuff. I learned how to use WordPress, which is something that comes up in every single job interview I have with a potential client. Do you know how to use WordPress? Do you know how to use Photoshop? So learn those things, but mainly just write, mm-hmm. you know, because people aren't going to hire you if you don't have writing samples and it's free or very cheap to buy a domain name, set up a WordPress blog and just start putting stuff up there. And then you have something that you can link to and you can say, I wrote this and you'll learn the discipline too. Right. And to the make craft. Sure, yeah. And the craft and to make sure that you write every day and you know, you don't have to write a lot and it doesn't necessarily have to be good. You know, it's it's okay to write stuff that's bad and then you just don't post it or you edit it until mm. it is good. You know, so getting over that fear and and but again, it's it's really like, you know, just do the work. Like no one's gonna hire you until you until you've done it. So it's kind of that's that punk rock ethos that you have to build your own luck. And I think we're similar in that. Yeah, that's how I've approached rap. You know, no one wanted to hear about eating insects and. Shakespeare rap when I, you know, in high school, but like, I just, we both just did it. We both just went out and did it. You did it. You have, I mean, you create your own opportunities. It's competitive. Yeah. You know, but, but you can't wait for someone to find you and give you the chance. You have to make your own chances. And Chris, like you, it's, you don't want to compare yourself to other people's success and like count their pockets and what they're doing. Cause that's a one way trip to just being done. Yeah. That'll depress you and, and frustrate you. No. And it's, it's, important to be critical of yourself but it's also i think important to be proud even if you're not getting paid even if you're just posting on your own blog if you're like well this week i'm going to try to post you know something every day and you hit five days maybe you didn't hit your goal but you still like you wrote five things and you put them online or like in your case like if you want to start writing songs try writing the songs and maybe they won't be good and maybe you won't finish everything that you start but if you finish some that's still more you know songs than you had written like a week or two ago and it's, it's yeah and it's it's about believing in yourself yeah so chris thank you for your time thank you very much yeah yo we did the fist pump okay <laughs> this is great bye Daenerys be the name and I'm
I'm setting hearts aflame when I'm burning down these villages and freeing all the slaves. Wiz Khaleesi, have you met my dragons? My brother tried to sell me to Cal Drogo, look what happened. A bit hot-headed with that molten golden crown. I stopped the Kalasar, so don't be messing with me now. With my lover in the eye, winter's coming, so am I. I burned the witch alive and took my son and husband's lives. But I survived so frisky, now these dragons have my back. Suitors are so frisky and they always try to mac. Zabazo and Daxos had to lock him in a vault. Made my way to Slaver's Bay, but it was not my fault. It was karmic retribution. There was no prepare when the Macrasses tried to mess with the wrong Targaryen. I smarted him like Tyrion when I knew how Valyrian. These creatures on my shoulders, well, I think you should be fearing them. Fearing them. I got dragon blood. What you wanna do, son? I got dragon blood. What you wanna do? I got dragon blood. What you wanna do, son? Cause I'm always going home with my love. The Thraki, unsullied behind me, like I'm Illuminati. It's the mother of dragons with my gigantic army. We'd be marching to Marine, but no, we didn't come to party. Cause they crucified the slaves and put them on the cross. Sir Jorah, please get lost. I know you think I'm hot. My schedule's kinda busy, got no time for parryin'. White girl politic and that's Daenerys Palin. From Thorn to the Stormlands, the north and beyond. To the Westlands and Essos, I'm keeping it strong. From the Crownlands to the Reach, you know I'm getting love. To the Riverlands and back because I've got that dragon blood. So follow more ghoulists. I thought that you knew this. But dragons are people. You know we've been through this. I'm quick to burn a hater. No mercy. Damn, you're smacking kings in the face like my name was Cersei Lannister. Burn, burn. You should gonna burn. 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 I got dragon blood. What you wanna do, son? I got dragon blood. What you wanna do? What you wanna do, son? Cause I'm always going home with my dark crew. I got dragon blood. What you wanna do, son? I got dragon blood. What you wanna do? I got dragon blood. What you wanna do, son? Cause I'm always going home with my dark crew. I got dragon blood. What you wanna do, son? I got dragon blood. What you wanna do? I got dragon blood. What you wanna do, son? Cause I'm always going home. What you want to do, son? Chris Gates, great guy. ChrisTheWriter.com, and on Twitter, he's Chris W. Gates, and uh, I'm always retweeting that fool because he's tight. Okay, so next week, it's a two-part series on a band I've played so many shows with, my friends Cuckoo Kangaroo. We start, the first one is with Neil, so Neil's next week, and then the week after that is Brian. And we did these interviews while I was in the UK with them. They were kind enough to take time between our busy touring schedule and talk about their careers, their lives, their dreams, their approach to creating, and how they've crushed the YouTube game like no one else. So that is next week. 
Hope you're all having a good summer. And yeah, thanks for tuning in. Please leave a review. If you want to hear two new MCLR songs a month, please go to patreon.com slash MCLRs. I did an Eastbound and Down song, which I'm very, very proud of. So keep your ears open for that. Keep a song in your heart and a dance in your footsteps. What? That sounds tight, right? That sounds like some like something from the 20s. Keep a song in your heart because the depression will be over soon. Holler. Okay. Oh, thank you all. Okay. See you soon. Bye.